break 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 Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Chile is set to have its first elections this month following the 2019 uprising, which was provoked by growing inequality and fueled by a violent and deadly police response. But as the left has made gains, so too has the far right in Chile. Here to break it all down and discuss how it fits into the broader Latin American scene is Renato Vélez, a left-wing Chilean activist and researcher currently completing a PhD in Latin American studies. Renato, welcome. Thank you, Rania. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you on to talk about what is looking like a extremely concerning presidential election that's coming up. So I guess it's the best place to start, Renato, is to begin by talking about the rise of this presidential candidate, Jose Antonio Cast. He's quite a nasty character. From what I've been reading, he's an open supporter of the dictator, Augusto Pinochet. And he suggested digging ditches along the country's border to stop migrants. And he's rising in the polls quite dramatically. And actually, I think he's currently leading in the polls. So can you tell us about this man and about the rise of the far right in Chile that he represents? Yeah, sure. This is the most concerning uh, like development for us. Uh, for many people, for many people here, it's like a surprise mm. because many people kind of say that uh, you know we have the like the social revolution, the revolt, uh, the uprising. Then we voted for the constitutional convention. Progressive forces have the majority of the convention. They are working, you know, in drafting a new constitution. And, uh, and 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 the you know the support for the new constitution was eighty percent against twenty. So how is possible that after wow. that, now this guy like um, Mr. Cast is ahead in the polls? And it's not. I mean, uh, it's hard to understand for people from the left how this is happening. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I I have this kind of discussion with many friends, and it's like we we saw this in in the U.S. And we mm-hmm. saw this in Brazil. And yeah. the left is doing the very same mistakes the left did in both countries, especially in Brazil. Uh, and, 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 and like, it, like every do, everybody is doing their part to make this guy president. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a terrible thing. And, uh, and uh, like, if you want my explanation of, um, about why, why he's like uh, growing like very quickly, I think there's like three kind of issues that are important. First of all, is uh, that, uh, you know, before the social revolt of 2019, uh, Chilean society was mostly calm. So there was no, there was no like political instability Mm -hmm. and people was accustomed to that. I'm not saying that, you know, before the revolt things were fine. That's why there was a revolt in the first place. But, uh, but you were used to live like, in a calm way, the, the, Chile was like the poster child of uh, democratic governance mm-hmm. and uh, market economics, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but what happened in the last two years is that just after the revolt came the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, of course, generated the economic crisis, not just in Chile, but globally. 
And uh, in the case of Chile, uh, government help, like for the people, like economic uh, aid, uh, was not available until very lately. Uh, because like uh, there was uh, something like uh, universal basic income, mm-hmm. but it, it was it became universal just this year. Like <laughs> uh, so, for most of the time of the pandemic, there was no actual help for the people, uh, and that of course you know generated a lot of economic like uh, concerns. Mm-hmm. Many people lost their jobs, lost their savings. Uh, one of the measures that was approved in Parliament, like in order to help people, is that uh, your pension funds, your retirement funds, you can take a part of them and use it as you wish, you know. So, so that's just like instead of government, you know, spending money in helping the people, since there was, since that was not an option, like Parliament uh, pushed this idea. Of mm-hmm. uh, you know, take part of your retirement funds and use them like as you as as you like, you know. <laughs> and the problem with that is that, you know, in Chile we have a totally privatized uh, social security system, so it's not like like social security. It do not exist in Chile. That's like so worse than America. That's I'm sorry. I just want to point out that's worse. I didn't know there was a place that was worse than America so, in yeah. terms of yeah. wow. So, so actually, what what you do is that. Uh, your retirement money goes to an individual account for you, and there's some private uh, companies that use that money, put it in the financial markets. So they use that money to finance banks, big corporations, etc. And allegedly, that generates that you know, it's, it's the, the intention is that you will gain. Uh, you know, profit. Your 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 pension will be higher. Because of that kind of financial investments, and oh God. what happens in the end is that you know people get really shitty pensions uh, mm-hmm. because there is moments in your working life in which you are unemployed, so you don't put money for 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 your personal uh, uh, account in 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 the retirement fund, and that makes that uh, like I will say eighty percent of the people get a pension which is lower than the minimum wage. Uh, wow. Like wow. there is pensions of, uh, I don't know, $80 a month, something like that. And, wow. uh, and, and, and that's like, uh, that's like the general case. So people, people in this context said, you know, uh, they, they said, you know, I don't know, I have a, a lot of money in the, my retirement funds, but even so, I will get a shitty pension in the end. So why not? Why not taking that money, using it mm-hmm. right now? Because anyway, I will have a shitty pension. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It will be like I don't know, fifty dollars lower if I take that money. I don't care. And that was the the judgment most of the people did. Uh, and that of course pumped a lot of money into the the system. And that also like in, uh, like have some sort of impact in in, in prices because mm-hmm. it was like a big and sudden higher demand of products. It's, it's happening everywhere actually. So so not just in Chile, but but that's uh, what's happening. So that was this is uh, issue number one: the economy. So there is mm-hmm. too much economic insecurity. Second issue is immigration. 
So we used to have like half a million immigrants, like for most of the last two decades. And in the last three years, we went from that to having one million and a half uh, immigrants. And of the of those half a millions are Venezuelans, and most of them came just in the last three years after President Piñera went to Cúcuta in Colombia, uh, when he was part of this uh, live aid uh, concert when they tried to bring the humanitarian aid, and he said, you know. Uh, Venezuelans, you are living, you know, under tyranny. Please come here to my country. We will receive you. We will attend you. We will provide you with everything. And what happened is that most of the people came here. The most of them enter illegally, and there is nothing like properly made to receive them. So there is like shanty towns of uh, immigrants in some northern cities of Chile, uh, in which they have no services, no healthcare, in the middle of a pandemic. They are using public spaces, and that of course creates clashes with the locals. And uh, and and the only person who actually said, you know, because you know the general mood in these countries, we don't want more immigrants because we are not prepared to like receive more. We are under, uh, under an economic crisis. Uh, we are not able to save ourselves. How we can pretend to save others? Uh, mm-hmm. And that of course generate different reactions. People, some people were criticizing Piñera for for promoting uh, uncontrolled immigration uh, in, in, in such circumstances. And other people say, you know, immigrants are going to stole your jobs and uh, they are bringing crime and drugs and etc. We know this speech from other yeah, places. Yeah. Uh, and in that context, cast rise as a person who has a solution, which is to dig a trench in the border to prevent people from entering the country. Uh, which, of course, will not solve every, anything. Uh, people will cross anyway. They will find a way. But it's a concrete solution. He's suffering something concrete. You know, of course, it, w- it won't work. But, but anyway, uh, so that's our two things that are, 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 are like uh, pushing cast ahead of the polls. And the third issue is the collapse of the right. You know, huh, because... Huh. Uh, we used to have, like, uh, you know, Chilean political system for the last 30 years was two big coalitions. The center-left coalition, which is uh, Socialist Party, the Christian Democrats, which in Chile are considered center-left for some reason. Uh, and then on the right, you have uh, National Renewal, uh, UDI, uh, which is uh, Independent Democratic Union and uh, other small parties that pretend to be liberal conservatives. They are like the popular part, the, the popular party of Spain, something like that. Mm. Uh, and most of them are heirs of Pinochet. Like most of the leadership of those parties were part, were, you know, they were ministers of, or, or, or deputies during the Pinochet regime. Uh, and among them, there was, was uh, Mr. Cast. Mr. Cast was an MP and a leader of the UDI party, which is the most uh, was the most conservative party uh, in the in, in, in our country. Uh, his family descends from landlords who were part of the, 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 the like his base is in Paine, which is near Santiago, near the capital, and his father was uh, responsible allegedly for making lists of people 
for the military to come in and take them in the first years of the dictatorship. So that's, he has, of course, been an apologist of the dictatorship. At some point, he defended uh, uh, some, somebody called Miguel Krasnov Marchenko, which mm -hmm. was part of the, he, he was the son of a general, of a Cossack general of the Russian Civil War. So he was a total, <laughs> like, a, like a deranged anti-communist. He, he was one of the biggest torturers of the regime. He, is uh, he has a sentence of 800 years in prisons for, for crimes against, uh, like, uh, human rights abuses. And, uh, and, and Mr. Kass has defended, uh, this guy for, you know, uh, because he is an old person and blah blah blah, he he did everything for trying to save the country from communism, etc. You know, now now Cast is not like uh, using these issues right now to become more popular. Of course, that's a secondary discussion right now. His focus is immigration, the economy, and the third thing is uh, crime, because mm. uh, like crime has uh, increased a lot. In, uh, in the country during the pandemic years is still not ter as terrible as in other Latin American countries. But for our parameters, the thing is going like really worse. Just for putting an example, the first time I went to Lebanon, the yeah. first night I arrived to Lebanon, I, I, I hear like machine gun fire and fireworks because of a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like really scared the first time. And, and, and then I came back to Chile, like the first time and say, oh, you know, I, I hear like some fireworks and, and, uh, and, 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 and machine gun fire because they were celebrating a wedding. And now, honestly, I hear uh, like guns and fireworks every night in my house. Wow. It's, it's so, so there is like a drug gangs and stuff like that is penetrating in different spaces of, of, the, of, of the country, especially in the capital. And the situation, of course, is getting out of control. So he is also cap capitalizing on that because the left usually proposed nothing regarding crime. Left mm. discourse is always we must attack, you know, the structural causes of, uh, of crime, uh, which is, you know, economic inequality, poverty, etc., which is fine. I agree with that. But mm. in the meantime, there is, a, there is another yeah. issue I was forgetting about caste. So as I told you, this guy was from the UDI party which is part of the governing coalition. But uh, at some point, he broke with the party and created his own party, which is called the Republican Party. How original <laughs> it is. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and like he is like uh, some sort of, uh, I, I will say, he, he is like Bolsonaro in, 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 uh, in, in, in terms of his proposals. But... Mm -hmm as a personality, like his personality is the totally opposite of Trump or Bolsonaro. He is a very calm person. He speaks like very gently and elegantly. He's very, he's a very good speaker. Let's say he's pretty good at the debates, better than any other candidate of, of the offer right now. And uh, so that's, uh, I think, one of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the key features of, of this guy. He's, he's a it, Bolsonaro, but in a Chilean way. He's Well, it sounds like he's a more effective um, Trump or Bolsonaro if he's not as like 
like outrageous in his speech and stuff like that and like says as crazy like offensive things although that might be part of their appeal but what strikes me is how similar what you're talking about sounds to sounds to so much of what we're seeing in countries that have these kinds of neoliberal economies that are going through economic crises and the crime rates going up and there's all these sort of like law and order issues and immigrants. I mean, I think the issue of immigrants is the most striking. And I want to touch on that for a moment because you mentioned how Chile form, used to have like a very low number of non-Chilean citizens. And I saw this statistic based on Chile's governmental statistics that the number of foreign born citizens living in Chile more than tripled between 2014 to 2019 and to what you said, which was 1.5 million. So that's a dramatic increase in a very short period of time. And I think it's interesting because many of these migrants are actually fleeing violence and poverty. And you mentioned play, you mentioned Venezuela, but also I know there's like some Haitian migrants. I'm not sure how much of the migrant population in Chile they make up, but there are Haitians coming in, but you know, I can't help but notice that these are two countries, Haiti and Venezuela. The reason people are fleeing is because these two countries are suffering from the consequences of U.S. policies. So this strikes me as another consequence of, a, of U.S. policy playing out in yet another country. Like it reminds me of, you know, the U.S. did this war on Syria, caused this massive refugee crisis yeah. where refugees flooded into Europe. And it actually changed the politics of Europe and like fueled the far right. Is that kind of what you see happening in Chile with the issue of migrants? Yeah, but uh, it's sort of, but the problem here is that uh, my, like the, you know, the blame on why this uh, wave of migration happens. It's, it's not like that here in Chile. So mm. for the average Chilean, the, the responsible, like the, the origin of this crisis is the mismanagement of the Maduro's government. Of course, yeah. And this that's what is they would say. And that's a talking point you hear from the far right to the left. Oh, you know? that's unfortunate. I feel like I feel like this is a mistake that the left in the US has always made and other countries is they fail to point out the real culprit. I'm sorry, go, go ahead. It just it's it's very striking the similarities. Um, but so even the left isn't and in Chile isn't making the point of like Yeah, I, I mean okay. not all the left. But the the mainstream left, mm. or, or they or blame, they, yeah, <laughs> no, no, but they 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 are progressives, you know. Okay. Um, okay. I I won't say they're liberals, but they're pretty close <laughs> to that, but not, but but not not that liberals, yeah. So uh, so so uh, you know, the blame for the migration here in Chile is put in the case of the Venezuelans on Maduro. It's mm -hmm. not about the U.S. Uh, sanctions or U.S. meddling. No, it's solely on Maduro. And I must like say also that the people who came here, you know, the Venezuelans who are here, they hate Maduro. Like yeah. that's like a common talking point. And it, actually, if you go to the streets right now and you are campaigning for a left wing candidate, they were they say, "Hey, Chileans, don't hear." The, the you know the, the the proposals of the left because this is this will turn the country into Venezuela. We are freeing from this. Don't do this to your country. Please be aware of this and etc. So that's pretty complex actually. And then you have the case of people uh, coming from Haiti, which mm -hmm. is a wave that has been stopped. Let's say it's, it's not happening like at the same rate that it used to be before. 
And uh, in that case, people blame the United Nations for such... Uh, <laughs> Wait, what? They blame so, the United so they, Nations? So they, so they blame the United Nations, our, our former uh, center-left president, Bachelet, which is now the UN Rights Commission head. Right. Uh, they they blame her for uh, for taking too much people from Haiti, and they allegedly said that George Soros paid her like to oh, bring Haitian people to the country. So that's the kind of you know right wing <laughs> conspiracy theory bullshit that is going everywhere in social networks, and people believe it. Like that's yeah. that's is true of the matter. Like. That's unfortunate. And in Latin America, I mean, you and I have talked about this before with the Latin American right. It's like they always invoke the issue of Venezuela and Cuba. They seem to play for a country like Chile, like Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez and Maduro kind of play the role that Russia and China do in the U.S., where they're like invoked as like the big boogeyman. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Are, are, is that still happening but, in Chile? But, like, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. They blame Cuba and Venezuela and Russia for the social revolt uh, and now they they blame like like there is a big conspiracy that somehow team ups uh, the United Nations George Soros and at the same time Maduro and Fidel and and, and, and Cuba and uh, Nicaragua and uh, Bolivia so it's like like these people have no idea of international relations. Yeah, they have no idea. If only, what's if only, I mean, if only they knew how much money George Soros actually spends trying to overthrow the governments of Cuba and Venezuela. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask you, going back to the issue of the rise of the far right in Chile. I mean, this is actually something you've been you've been actually warning about this for years. I remember, you know, you and I have known each other for years because you've traveled to Lebanon. That's where I met you, and. You've always told me about this far right in Chile that's like fascist. And the, I, the, I found this, um, I want to read this sentence to you from a, an article. I think it was like a Guardian article because it reminded me of something that you'd mentioned to me about the Chilean far right. But this sentence says, before the October 2020 referendum on write, rewriting the Constitution, small marches in Santiago's wealthiest neighborhoods were adorned with U.S. Confederate flags and make Chile great again paraphernalia, as well as a handful of baton-wielding demonstrators clad in military helmets. So (laughs) what the hell is that about? You have people who actually, like, wave the Confederate flag in Chile? Yeah, Yeah. and there was even people that went to protest outside the U.S. embassy to support Trump allegations of election fraud, you know? <laughs> of wow. course, it's not a lot of people. It's not a lot of yeah. people. That's like small portion of the f- uh, far-right movement. But, like... They exist. What the fuck, man? So much. <laughs> so you've, you've mentioned to me... Yeah, that's too much. But you've mentioned to me that this presidential candidate cast is part of this network of far-right... Uh, people across Latin America. And you specifically noted that Steve Bannon has actually helped organize this network. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so this uh, is a kind of interesting thing that few people know. There's several like uh, right-wing networks operating in in, uh, Latin America and in Europe. So they are very interconnected. Uh, And... um, there is, of course, Christian. There is Christian conservative groups uh, promoting this kind of uh, networks. There is also something uh, I think is called the Atlas Network. I think 
which is of, mm. uh, you know, right-wing libertarians, like free market uh, radicals. And there is also th- uh, something called the movement, which was uh, organized by Steve Bannon after he left the White House. And uh, at that moment, he he he, may, he became friend with uh, Eduardo Bolsonaro, which is the son of, uh, of Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil. And uh, they started making a lot of connections and travels to Spain, uh, to Brazil, to other countries of Latin America, uh, trying to create this network. Uh, so, for instance, uh, Mr. Cast has not met anyone from this network like directly, but he has maintained contacts with Mr. Bolsonaro, with the Vox Party of Spain, and oh. with the uh, the Kaczynski's party of Poland, so that's how far his network go. But uh, also, that there is like uh, so so they are promoting different figures across Latin America. One of the of these figures is uh, is of course cast in Chile, but they are putting all their efforts in re-electing Bolsonaro, and they are trying to promote the very same narrative. Trump promoted when he lost the election because every poll shows that Bolsonaro will lose the coming election in Brazil and Lula will come back to power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are trying to like uh, empower Bolsonaro to claim election fraud. And I must say that even if Bolsonaro is more unpopular than popular now, uh, he still has a big uh, support base. So that's uh, I I will say that one third of the Brazilian population is uh, bolsonarista, and they will support him any it, 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 no matter what he does. Um, and then like you have another figure, which is Javier Milei, which is uh, f- uh, like a very cringe like uh, <laughs> like uh, economist. You should uh-huh. look at him at uh, YouTube. He's like on cocaine every time. <laughs> like, like I will, I will say that even Hitler was calmer than him when <laughs> debating. Like honestly. Oh my like, god! Honestly. And wow! And, and he created this libertarian uh, front, right wing libertarian front in in uh, Argentina, and now he's uh, like contesting the city of Buenos Aires uh, gubernatorial election. And he's in the third place. I must say that uh, the city of Buenos Aires is always more uh, it's, it's more right-wing leaning. Right? It's more mm. right-leaning, always. Uh, that's uh, the city when uh, where Ma- Mauricio Macri came like to prominence in Argentina. Uh, mm. So so this guy Milei. Is like a radical uh, right-wing libertarian, which mm-hmm. is also supported by this Steve Bannon Bolsonaro network, and he is now in the third place for the uh, for the Buenos Aires election, which Jesus. is like uh, impressive because he was polling like two percent a year ago, and and you saw this in uh, in Argentina they have uh, public primaries. And uh, everybody, like uh, in, in Argentina, voting is compulsory. So everybody goes and votes in the primaries. And then you see that the center-left government right now of Argentina, of Mr. Fernandez, they lost a lot of support 
because of the economic crisis and I will say also culture wars. Like this is also an issue in Latin America, like these identity issues, etc. And people the say culture, you know, we call them in America, we call it the culture war. Yeah, exactly. It's the same yeah. thing. So they, they were promoting like uh, like identity politics uh, topics, mm -hmm. which I, I am not like against it, but they did it during an economic crisis. And a lot of people say, you know, you know, I I don't care about pronouns or whatever. I am like I am starving. I need jobs. I need food. I need money. Like yeah. and that's how like this guy Millet is, is doing like uh, inroads in the popular uh, in, in, in the more working class sectors of the Argentinian society. It's amazing how it's just like one place from another is having the same problem. And again, it just keeps going back to the issue of neoliberalism is really has rotted the economy in all of these countries and the pandemic made it worse. And then you have the right that's dealing with it, the far right dealing with it as it's always traditionally dealt with it, right? Which is by scapegoating immigrants, you know, playing identity politics um, and, you know, just using hate to push people yeah. into their camp. And then you have these, unfortunately, you have like the liberals and then, you know, the progressives that don't really end up having as much power of the liberals not knowing how to respond to it. And then they just respond, end up responding to it in ways that don't work. But and I want to actually get to that. I want to get to the problems, like why the left is losing to this guy right now. But first, I wanted to ask you how much of this has been a continuation, maybe not a continuation is the right word, but how much of this is related to the Pinochet era? And what I mean by that is, you know, in the U.S., we know that Washington supported the 1973 coup in Chile against Salvador Allende that installed Pinochet to power and led to a fascist dictatorship in your country until 1990. Was there ever any accountability, though, for the crimes under Pinochet? And Based on that, are there politicians today that remain in positions of power from that era? And is there any nostalgia for that era the same way that, for example, you see in Brazil with Bolsonaro having nostalgia for their military dictatorship? Yeah, of course there is. Like uh, One of the first issues that came uh, after the end of the dictatorship is that this the transition to democracy in mm -hmm. this country... Uh, was mediated by the Americans, you know. <laughs> so, so the, this this transition was designed in a way that everybody uh, can come to that term. So, so Pinochet remained as uh, chief commander of the armed forces until 1996. Uh, so he still has a say in Chile, even not being uh, like dictator. He always like uh, make his moves when the, uh, his interests were touched by the by the civilian government. Uh, part of that agreement was also that the center left uh, coalition, who took power after Pinochet, uh, will not touch the key pillars of the neoliberal uh, economic uh, project that was launched by Pinochet. So it that was not touched by the center-left government that came after Pinochet, and also the political order that was established, established by Pinochet remained, you know, and that's why we are changing the constitution now. So so that's why, you know, uh, and, and I must say also that in the referendum that kicked out Pinochet out of power, he lost 
but he earned 43% of the vote. So that means that a very big size of the accessible part of the population supported Pinochet, even knowing everything that happened, you know? Mm. Uh, so that uh, kind of support base, which is all people that has no nostalgia for the dictatorship, exists. But there is also a phenomenon uh, that uh, I am seeing every year, I, I, since I do classes, etc., that is younger people, people who did not live under Pinochet, that many of them have no relation or no interest in politics until very recently, and they are supporting Mr. Cast, you know, and they are oh. praising Pinochet, and they are doing memes, you know, praising Pinochet and, uh, you know, making fun of the, you know, the helicopter jokes about Pinochet, throwing people out of yeah. helicopters, etc. So that's an issue that's happening here. Of course, it's not as massive as you will imagine, but it's not a minor phenomenon. This is actually growing in a part of the, in a one sector of the population. I mean, that's interesting. And I guess it kind of makes sense. You said the Americans mediated it, which how is that even allowed to happen? <laughs> um, yeah. But also in the sense that like after you have a fascist dictatorship that just executes masses of leftists, it's like who's going to be left? It's not surprising that you had yeah. a lot of people still supporting him because he didn't kill his supporters. He killed the people who didn't support him. But then moving, I mean, what you say also makes sense to why the left in Chile has maybe been so weak. Um, since the end of the dictatorship, if they weren't ever allowed to touch the pillars of the free market economy and the government that he set up. And that kind of brings us to the issue of the left. So you have this candidate that's running against Cast, who until recently was expected to actually win the presidency. And that's Gabriel or Gabriel Boric. I think you say it yeah. differently. It's Boric. Yeah. But Gabriel Boric. Where is that? Where is that? Uh, I was going to say that yeah. sounds. Yeah. OK, so he's he's Croatian. Um, so Gabe, Gabriel Boric uh, is the candidate. He's like the left candidate um, yeah. that's running against this right wing guy. And he's now falling in the polls. So can you tell our listeners and viewers who is he? Do you think he still has a chance of winning? Um, and if yes or no, can you explain why? I think, first of all, I think he still has a chance of winning. But, That's good to hear. <laughs> uh, but it's a big if, you know, because, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, first thing people should know about Boric is that he was a student leader uh, during the 2011 and 2012 protests, which were like the prequel for the social revolt of 2019. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and uh, he, he, he was head of the University of Chile Student Federation, which is the most important one in the country. Uh, then he ran as independent uh, for, an, uh, for a seat in the deputies chamber. He was selected uh, twice. And, uh, and then he, with other people who were not part of the traditional left, I must say, people who were not from the Communist Party or the Humanist Party, they start creating a movement, you know, which was called the uh, Autonomous Left. Then, um, uh, then, uh, then, then there was a lot of like uh, makeup, uh, breakups, and mixing of different organizations, and then emerged something called Frente Amplio, like uh, Broad Front, 
like a white front. I don't know how to translate it. <laughs> uh, uh, which was a coalition of uh, liberal to left-wing parties. So in that coalition that was formed in 2017, you have people from the liberal party. There is a liberal party in the in, in Chile, which is like the type of, I don't know, uh, like Kamala Harris type of liberal party. <laughs> and, uh, and in the same coalition, you have people from uh, equality party which is a Bolivarian uh, anti-imperialist uh, left-wing party on the, on the other side. And they, they all coexist together uh, <laughs> during a, a certain time. Uh, and they pushed the candidacy of a journalist uh, named Beatriz Sanchez, a woman. Uh, mm. he, she got 20% uh, of the vote in that presidential election, which was uh, like a surprise for everyone. Uh, the broad front uh, got a lot of uh, MPs elected for the chamber, which was also a surprise. And that was like the, I, I will say that that's the base uh, for what happened later. Uh, and the problem is that later, in, in, like in time, this coalition started to divide itself, mm -hmm. like uh, liberals left the coalition, then people from the left, uh, went out and uh, Boric was one of the remaining figures of the coalition one of the th there is like two main figures in the broad front coalition one is uh, Gabriel Boric and the other one is Giorgio Jackson which is mm -hmm. uh, uh, from another party called Democratic Revolution which is like uh, let's say it's like the Democratic Socialists of America like okay that's a kind <laughs> of uh, I think they are actually like they have official relations with them. I don't know exactly. Um, but um, so those are the two main figures of the broad front. And uh, what happened is that uh, during the social revolt, the broad front split it again among the people who wanted a constitutional assembly properly and a constitutional convention, which Still, you know, you have uh, people elected to write a new constitution, but has a lot of like limitations imposed by the the law that enabled this to happen. Uh, so some people rejected the the, the agreement that uh, enabled this constitutional process to happen because it was not enough for them, and they left. And uh, Boric was uh, in a party in a in a political party did not support the agreement, but he supported it as an individual. And that, of mm. course, created another split and, you know, things that usually happen <laughs> in, in the left, you know, the, yeah. the way this tendency of, of splitting apart. And, uh, and then what happened is that for the, for the conventional elections, you know, to elect these people, uh, the broad front of Boric made an alliance with uh, another bloc which was led by the Communist Party. And they became the biggest, uh, uh, the biggest force of the, of the opposition in the Constitutional Convention, you know, because go the, the government, uh, like, the, like the officialist parties, they didn't even get like one third of the seats of the, the Constitutional Convention. So now like the center left, the left and the far left have the chance to come together and and push things through the convention. And immediately after that, 
the communists and the broad front agree on a primary for the presidential elections. There was two candidates there. One was Daniel Hadwe, which was the mm -hmm. front runner in every poll. He was the front runner. He was a mayor of a popular uh, neighborhood in Santiago. He was uh, he, he he became a front runner because of uh, concrete policies he enacted in his district, like uh, like uh, low cost uh, drugs and uh, uh, I don't know uh, uh, affordable housing for the people, like concrete measures that work and people yeah. like value that because you know in Chile there was there is a lot of anti communism you know <laughs> inherited from the Pinochet times. Uh, but uh, but but even so, he managed to become a very popular figure in in Chile, Mr. Hadwe. And what happened is that the primary began, and uh, I supported Hadwe. Just I, I I'm not an, an impartial observer here. <laughs> but, uh, it's okay. Neither are we at Breakthrough News. Yeah, We're not. <laughs> but, but 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 even so, I I kind of think that he missed the opportunity of uh, self-made mistakes. Mm. So there was problems in the campaign design, in, uh, in 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 his approach to the media. He was too confrontational with the media at the debates, and at the same time, he was too friendly with uh, Boric and in a debate you want to stress your differences you don't want to stress your like similarities mm. people will choose you you know uh, and not the other person and he, he, right. he made that mistake and Boric he should have he should have hired you as a consultant yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, and, and what happened in the end is that also another mistake uh, Howe made is that he presented a 225 pages uh, government program mm -hmm. that was presented very quickly too much and honestly I didn't believe he actually knew everything that was uh, in the program so the right wing and the media start to look at for the most like uh, you know controversial parts of the of the program and he was not able to like uh, give proper answers and that uh, i think it was uh, a, a, as i said it was a self-made uh, mistake and uh, and then in the last week of the primary there was this uh, right-wing uh, riots in cuba ah so that's the when the media, primary was yeah, okay and then, and then came the discussion about you know uh, Cuba is a dictatorship, what about human rights? And then, you know, you have the, the, the issue with Mr. Boric, uh, that he's like very pretty much the champion of human rights. So he mm -hmm. will like uh, denounce human rights everywhere and anywhere. And, uh, and, and so he condemns Cuba, he condemns Venezuela, he condemns Nicaragua, oh. he condemns China, he condemns Israel too. But, you know, nobody asks about Israel, you know. Mm. They always ask you about Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. And he's pretty quick to condemn that. And, uh, and another factor, which I think did, it made no harm for Hadwe, but was part of the media campaign, was accusing him of being an anti-Semite. So they play the same card as, uh, <laughs> as, as they did against Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. So yeah. they say, because he was part of the PFLP, in his youth, so there's uh, like uh, 
And he has never been, he, he was never like, uh, he never apologized for being the defender of the Palestinian cause. He is Palestinian and has every right to, to support the Palestinian cause. Mm -hmm. So what's the problem with that? So they start saying, no, he was an anti-Semite and they went to, so far as to uh, look out for his annuary of uh, high school. Like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the book with the, you know, description of the class of that year and uh, there was like some anti-semitic jokes in his uh. description that were made by his fellows not by him and they used that to say you know he was uh, he has the seed of hate since he was a young person he hates Jews and blah 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 and etc um, so all these factors plays, played against Hadwe and also there was right wing people and people from the center left that went and voted in the primary for Boric to get rid of Hadwe. And that's mm. how he won the primary. But I, I will say, mostly it was to Hadwe's mistakes, but there was also this uh, outside intervention from other political sectors to get rid of, uh, of Hadwe. So after that, uh, Boric was uh, like uh, doing a very good performance at the polls. He was polling between... 25 and uh, 30% in every poll since uh, since since the primary since the primary and uh, then uh, happens in the last month that uh, we have the immigration uh, riots in the north uh, there was this uh, there was the cast uh, there was cast rising in the polls and at the same time Boric made a lot of mistakes uh, in in some interviews, like not know not knowing like certain uh, you know numbers about the economic uh, like uh, numbers etc. So he was uh, presented as a something which has no preparation, no mm -hmm. skills, no knowledge on the economy. And how are you going to run a country which is uh, in an economic crisis if you don't know anything about the economy etc. You know. And uh, and there was some declarations like pretty stupid by a person called Mr. Sebastian De Polo, which is of one of the broad front parties, and he said because Boric has said in, in his campaign that uh, if you don't want more political instability, we must do the changes that the society needs because if you don't make those changes, instability will continue. And of course, I agree with that. That's fine. But then this guy, which is part of the, you know, campaign uh, staff of, of Boric, said in an interview with the right wing newspaper, he said, no, uh, we will generate instability in the country because we are doing the right. We will do the, the, the right changes. And it's like, I mean, yeah, of course, there will be instability if changes are, 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 are pushed. But you are not going to say that in an interview with the right wing <laughs> newspaper. You know, that's, that's the problem. Cool. Yeah. And, and, and all these things, uh, you know, sum up and the, the, and since then Boric has been falling in the polls, but it's not that big, you know, it's not a big fall. The problem is that the right wing candidate, uh, the far right candidate is going up because there was another right wing candidate. Uh, and the problem with the other guy is that he was not a professional politician. His name is Sebastian Sichel, and I will say that his entire history is a fraud. He even changed his surname. Uh, 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 so he's, he's like an entire fraud, and he was promoted by big business, 
Like mm. he is, you know, the number one uh, recipient of uh, of money for 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 campaigning, you know, from uh, big economic groups, uh, because he was trying to say, you know, I, I support neoliberal economics, but I am also in favor of gay marriage and abortion, and then he started like he presented himself as an incoherent centrist, <laughs> and, um, and 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 people don't want something like that in this moment. They want sharp, uh, uh, they want radical proposal, no matter if from the right or from the left, but something radical and sharp. And, 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 and he was not delivering that. So then yeah. people from the right wing coalition start jumping ship and joining cast because he was more like uh, an electable person. And something they have been doing right now, people, you know, people from the official coalition that went to the far right, uh, they are been asking public universities for uh, to make lists of uh, the professors at the universities, and they ask, specifically ask which topics they teach at the university. They want to know uh, which people is teaching about gender studies, gender ideology, um, I don't know, social movements, social history, etc. And they ask. They are like asking. Uh, university staff to 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 make this list about who is teaching and what is teaching, and I honestly fear that this will be for, you know, if CAS goes uh, is elected, they will start expelling people from the university, or, or I don't know. You know, there is it's it's too strange that this is happening right now. That's really frightening. I was going to ask you about that if you fear for your own like livelihood in this situation because you had mentioned to me that that they were making lists of like basically leftists at universities yeah. and that could definitely impact you. So I hope this guy uh, doesn't win. I guess we'll have to wait and see. We'll know soon. No. I, I think the elections are coming by the time this comes out, it'll be like a week later or two weeks yeah. later, there'll be elections. Two weeks from now. Uh, yeah. Two weeks from now, the day we're recording this, um, which is uh, November 8th. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about the protests um, you know, these are, like I mentioned in the opening, these are the first elections that will be taking place following the 2019 protests against that growing inequality that you talked about. And you you were very much participating in that. Yeah. Um, and the authorities acted very brutally, I remember. And from what I understand, they killed over 30 people. They injured thousands. Uh, they intentionally shot people in the eyes with rubber bullets, blinding many people. Um and you kind of talked about what prompted these protests. And I, I'm curious, you know, protests have exploded intermittently since then, largely in response to police violence, which, of course, has continued. But what has been, I guess, the accomplishments of those protests? You mentioned this constitutional referendum or this constitutional rewriting. Is that one of the accomplishments? And what else is there that these protests have accomplished since they began a couple of years ago. Yeah, so uh, I, I am very pessimistic about this. I think the only mm. like gain we we got from this protest is the constitutional process with all its limitation, but it's the only thing we, 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 we get from that. And, uh, and, 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 you know, one of the issues is that the pandemic demobilized the people. Mm. So that, of course, was a big demobilizer because... Actually, I was in Beirut in uh, March in March 2020, and uh, at that moment, 
there was an uh, an upsurge of the protest again because the protest started in October 2019 mm -hmm. then you know there is summer vacations and then March is when uh, students go back to school and uh, people start to work again after after the holidays and mm -hmm. um, and uh, there was an like an upsurge in in protest and there was even like the senate some uh, senators uh, ordered a report to uh, like establish how they can remove the president if he is mentally unfit to stay in the in, in the office. So that's what like the kind of uh, situation we had right before the pandemic. Mm. So the next week after that, the pandemic came and everything like uh, went down. Like uh, the mass mobilizations were shut down. There was no, and, and, and people start like the, the very people that, you know, call for protest say, you know, we must remain at home. We must protect our families, etc. Then there was a, there was a, like rallies. I won't say protest rallies uh, in very big numbers for the first anniversary of the revolt. And uh, that was a week before the referendum that uh, that enabled the constitutional process. And after that, there, there, ha there, there have been no big protest. Like people mm. have been demobilized. And, and uh, after the election of the constitutional convention, th there have been a systematic attack against the convention by the right wing media, by the government. Uh, parliament is not helping very much to the process. Uh, so there is like a, let's say, a communicational uh, operation to discredit the constitution. So it not so so they can uh, get rejection of the new constitution the next year because next year the constitution will be submitted to referendum to approve or reject the new constitution. You know mm. now that is is finished. So so there have been this systematic attack and a lot of people voted, for instance, for independence from social movements to uh, be part of the convention. And they did really well in that election. But what, what happened is that for particular scandals of some of the members of the convention, the entire work of the convention has been discredited. I will put to you an example. There was a guy uh, called uh, named uh, Rodrigo Rojas. He was at every day in the protest in downtown Santiago and he's, he became known because he said uh, he said he uh, has uh, cancer and he was protesting because uh, you know uh, the right for free healthcare etc and people actually you know he became popular because of that and many people voted for him i voted for him for that reason <laughs> and uh, it turns out that uh, he never had cancer it was all fake <gasps> Oh my God, he was lying. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. And and, and what happened is that uh, this guy cannot resign from the convention, even if he wants, because okay. the law was never, you know, the people who made the law enabling the constitutional process never expected a constitutional member to resign from the convention. Yeah. So, so now you have the problem that people is, you know, saying why this guy is still being paid by the state, by public funds, 
to work in the convention if he's not working and he's lying and you have this process uh, and this kind of discussions every day. So there is like a systematic effort to discredit the convention and sometimes the very people who are in are not helping really much to... to yeah. What a disaster. And just just for those who are listening and watching, this is the basically this referendum is all about rewriting the Constitution that has not been rewritten since ni- the 1980s under Pinochet. Yeah. So that's an important task. And it makes sense that there would be this huge, likely corporate funded campaign to make sure it's not rewritten, because the way it's written is likely very good for global finance capital, I would imagine. I wanted to very yeah. briefly before we kind of broaden out from Chile. I wanted to ask you about this issue that I, I've seen getting some coverage with the, there's like this indigenous rebellion taking place in Chile right now. I don't know if I'm saying this right. It's the Mapuches. Yeah. Okay. So the Mapuches, who are the largest indigenous community in Chile, have reportedly staged this rebellion. They're uh, reported to have been attacking forestry companies and large Mm -hmm. landowners. And your president, Sebastian Piñera, has declared a state of emergency as a result of this, and he's invoking, you know, the issue of drug traffickers and violent crime. So can you very briefly explain, I guess, the conditions for indigenous people in Chile, who we don't very often hear about? How does the Chilean public view the indigenous community? And why is this particular group fighting against the government right now? And and yes, lastly, sorry, this is like five questions in one. <laughs> but also, if you could speak to how if, if this is playing out in the election uh, discussion, at all or having in any impact on on the elections yeah let me start by saying that the the mapuche people are the largest indigenous group in uh, this country they are the biggest uh, ethnic minority if you want to put it that way um and uh, they live in the south southern region of chile uh, which is also the uh, main area for the forest industry, you mm. know. So what happened is that uh, before the independence of Chile from the Spanish Empire, uh, the Spanish crown recognized the autonomy of these indigenous communities in southern Chile. Mm-hmm. Then uh, after independence, the Chilean state recognized the autonomy of these indigenous communities. But then in 2018, uh, there was a process called the pacification of uh, of Araucania, which is the southern region in which these people uh, live, uh, which was a military invasion. So they invaded uh, the Mapuche land uh, to develop uh, agriculture in the interest of, uh, of, of the Chilean ruling class. You know, because uh, uh, maybe you don't know this, but uh, Chile invaded Bolivia and Peru uh, and we conquered the two provinces, one from Bolivia and uh, one from uh, Peru. And in that provinces are the biggest uh, resources of Chile. At the first time, uh, in, in the beginning, it was nitrate and then was copper. And uh, most of the Chilean workers went to work in the north in the mines and fields of nitrate and copper, but then you need to, uh, you know, satisfy the demand for food for those workers. So after the conquest of the north, uh, the Chilean military moved south and conquered the Mapuche land. And also that happened because if you saw a, a map of Chile, like Chile was sort of a split, 
because we, uh, you know, have a sovereignty and control over the far south and then the rest of the country. So the Mapuche land was like an obstacle for the, the, the ter territorial continuity of the Chilean state. Something very similar happened in Argentina at the same time. Uh, so what happened is that people were uh, deprived from uh, from their lands, and uh, and then the time passed by. Then we came to the Allende's government, in which there was land reform. Mm -hmm. So land was expropriated from the landlords and landowners, and was uh, you know give to peasants. Among those peasants, there was uh, Mapuche people. Mm -hmm. I must stress that that the, the Allende's government enacted this policy as a general policy for the for, for the Chilean population. It was not specifically designed for the Mapuche people, but they were they 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 benefited from the land reform. Then during Pinochet, there was the counter land reform in which many of these uh, of these uh, like uh, batches of land were. Uh, taken back or restitute to the landlords or sell to agribusiness companies and forestry companies. And then in the 90s, there was like a, an uprising of Mapuche identity. There was like a revival mm. of indigenous identity in the South. And uh, they start taking uh, lands like by, by force, let's say, like uh, they start they stage occupation and they start uh, establishing autonomous communities. And uh, later on, there was uh, some organizations who were engaging like uh, armed violence mm. or taking those lands are attacking the objectives of uh, like or, or targeting uh, forest industry, truck, uh, truck companies, etc. And uh, you have this situation right now in which there is like a state of permanent violence in the south, in, in the Araucania region in which there is like uh, armed violence uh, by the indigenous communities who want their land back. There is also violence uh, from uh, landowners who fund some paramilitary groups. And this is never acknowledged by the mainstream media, but this is known in the South. Like the landlords, they support uh, paramilitary groups too. Then you have uh, police special forces that have been operating there for, I don't know, 20 years or something. And now you have the military operating there. And that's the situation right now. Um, and uh, and one of the characteristics or, or features of the Mapuche people is that they organize in a way that is very decentralized. So maybe you can capture a person from one organization, but you will not solve anything. You know, in the 90s, there was an organization called Coordinadora Arauco Mayeco, and they disbanded the, their leadership by 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 the state disbanded the group by prosecuting them. But now there is a lot of, there is like six or five uh, uh, different uh, insurgent groups operating in the South. Um, so that's, uh, that's the issue. That's so interesting and um, doesn't actually ever get really talked about. Although indigenous issues in general don't get any attention in the mainstream media across uh, the Western hemisphere. But I wanted to broaden... Uh, the conversation out a little bit, because you and I have also talked about this before. I wanted to talk about the issue of the U.S.-China Cold War. And, yeah. you know, China is, interestingly enough, despite Chile's very close relationship with the U.S., China is Chile's largest trading partner, Yeah, uh, which, of course, worries the U.S. and Canada. And recently, um, this past summer, the 
uh, Chinese firm Sinovac announced plans to invest $60 million to build a vaccine manufacturing plant in Santiago. Um, so, I mean, that's a really big deal. That, that just speaks mm. to how close the, the partnership is between China and Chile when it comes to economic stuff. So my question for you is, how is the U.S.-China Cold War playing out in Chile, if at all? And how is it reflected or is it reflected at all in the political divide in Chile? This is very interesting. This is a very interesting issue, actually, because uh, I must stress two things. First of all, the U.S. is concerned about China's presence in Chile. They are. In uh, uh, Two years ago, Mike Pompeo came to Chile specifically to bully Piñera not to do business with China and with Huawei, the telecommunications uh, company. And uh, at that moment, there was a discussion of uh, implementing 5G in this country. And also there was a project of building a submarine uh, cable, like uh, for uh, optical fiber submarine cable to connect the internet of uh, Latin America with China through Chile. So there will, there will be a cable going from Shanghai in China to uh, Santiago, Chile, and then that cable will connect with uh, Bolivia, Brazil, Argentina, and other countries. So that was a big project uh, that was proposed by Huawei and the Chinese state. And uh, Mike Pompeo came to Chile and bully Piñera to say, you, you, should not, you shouldn't do that, you know, because you will be uh, doing business with a predatory empire, you know, made, ruled by the Chinese Communist Party, etc., you know. And what happened after that is that the process, the project of the um, of the cable, was uh, cancelled, and uh, then a new project was uh, developed uh, was developed to connect Chile with uh, New Zealand and Australia. So if you see this from a geopolitical point of view, is uh, is is, is uh, having the the communications of uh, Chile with uh, with Asia under the control of the Five Eyes Alliance. You know, this alliance between uh, uh, the US, uh, Canada, uh, New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. Mm. You know, so that's that's a concrete uh, example of how the, the, the Cold War is playing here. Also, another polemic we have here is that the, there was a licitation, I don't know if that's a proper English word, but the, the, like they, uh, leasing, I think that's the word. Uh, for doing the uh, the Chilean identification cards mm. and the Chilean passports, so there was many companies offering to do that, uh, and the most uh, the, the better option for the Chilean state in terms of price and quality was the, a Chinese company called Icino. Mm -hmm. This company won the, uh, the this uh, this contest, and they will start producing our passports and I. ID cards uh, in the next year. And the wow. issue is that during that uh, discussion, uh, the U.S. ambassador, or I don't know, it was a U.S. representative, because I don't know if we, we had ambassador at that moment. Uh, we have now one, but no, there was like many years without ambassador, without U.S. ambassador here. Um, maybe under Trump, maybe under yeah, Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and they warned that uh, if if uh, Chile accepted the offer of Icino, 
uh, they will deprive us from the visa waiver agreement we have with the U.S. Because we mm -hmm. are the only country in Latin America that has that uh, privilege. And of course, a lot of Chileans like to travel to the U.S. and and they are afraid about that. For me, it's not a big issue, and uh, I will be paying <laughs> like a third less, or a, I, I will pay the the passport price will go down a fifty percent. So it's a big oh. uh, risk for the average uh, for every traveler, except for the ones that want to go to the US. I see. Uh, and then there is an issue with the companies uh, buying like uh, strategic assets of the Chilean economy. So, for instance, uh, there was a, there is a Chinese private company called Tianqi, which uh, got twenty five percent of the lithium uh, company in Chile, which mm -hmm. is private and owned by this uh, Sony Law of Pinochet. I see, know? I see, and, uh, and and also a Chinese a state a Chinese state company. Uh, got control of uh, one of the the second most important uh, electricity provider of, of Chile, you know. So they control uh -huh. electric distribution, and that of course have generated some uh, some uh, like noise in in Chile. Uh, but above all, you know that you you have this kind of uh, growing Chinese presence in the country, but in the terms of the political discussion, this will make it's not really surprising. But uh, it, it is like this. Cast the right-wing candidate was asked about the relations of Chile with China, and he said we will maintain our relations with China because really our number one trading partner, you know, and oh. we are not going to discuss politics with China. But then you have Gabriel Boric, which is the left-wing candidate, and he said. No, we will denounce the human rights violations of China because we will denounce human rights violations everywhere uh -huh. and blah, blah, blah. You know? So Interesting. That's a, that's I'm, actually I'm actually surprised you say that just because you mentioned like Steve Bannon yeah, being yeah. behind that network yeah. and Steve Bannon yeah. is like so anti-China. Yeah, but you should so understand I would have that, been, the, yeah. that, like the, that like the Chilean oligarchy is totally on board with China. Ah, they are totally because they benefit. on board with China and, and class interests is what decides in the end. So that's why CAS will support relations with China and uh -huh. Boric will be like not good in relations with China or anything like that, but he will probably have some sort of confrontation with the with the with the Chinese or about at least, human rights or right. something. He would he would he would essentially be kind of like supporting the US back no, uh, yeah. propaganda against China no. basically. Exactly. Um, what a, and, what a bizarre... Uh, and, and what, yeah, go ahead. And a last thing. There was a poll made by a right-wing pollster like uh, three years ago, and they asked, who is your favorite uh, or, 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 or which world leader do you favor more, Donald Trump or Xi Jinping? And at that moment, Xi Jinping won by like 60% or something against, <laughs> uh, I don't know, 30% of Donald Trump. But after the pandemic also... There is this uh, conspiracy theories about the Chinese virus, and this is a Chinese plot to take over the world and, and control the global economy, etc. So, so there is now uh, some sort of growing anti-China sentiment in the general population, but uh, it won't go too far. You know, it's, it's interesting. Like Chinese in Chile are not. There is a lot of uh, Chinese malls in Chile, like small uh, small uh, store companies. 
Um, so they are everywhere, but I will say the Chinese community is very like uh, reclusive. So they they like they do not interact too much with the general population. So they are there is no like xenophobia, like the one you see against uh, I don't know people from Haiti or from Venezuela or from Colombia. That's so interesting. Like that's like a completely different dynamic that I can't really imagine because it's just so different in the U.S. But I do want to move to a country that is close to you, which is Peru. Um, and I really do appreciate all the time you're giving me. I promise I don't have that many more questions, but I really, it would be a shame not to talk about Peru because, you know, next door you have Pedro Castillo, this former rural school teacher and farmer who won on a leftist platform in Peru to lift up the poor and nationalize various resource extraction industries in one of the most unequal countries in Latin America. So to no one's surprise, there's been this right-wing soft coup attempt against him. Can you explain what's happening in Peru? Who is the opposition to Castillo? And on what basis are they demanding he step down? Yeah, so there's like uh, something uh, people should know about Peruvian politics. I'm not an expert on Peruvian politics, uh, so I, I may be mistaken. But the <laughs> problem is that they have a, like like their politics is very fluid. So mm. one day people will say A and the next day they will say B, you know. <laughs> and uh, and actually Pedro Castillo was not ahead in the polls. Like he, he started to upsurge just two weeks before the election and there was like 15 presidential candidates. So 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 there was uh, Keiko Fujimori, which is the hair of uh, his father, uh, of her father, uh, Alberto Fujimori, which was a brutal uh, and corrupt let's say dictator of Peru. He was not uh, like technically a dictator, but he ruled as a dictator. Uh, and then you have other people like uh, who were like Trump, like Peruvian versions of Trump. Then you have uh, uh, Peruvian versions of Bernie Sanders or Alexandra Ocasio. And then you have Pedro Castillo, who was mm -hmm. a no one and uh, who came ahead in the polls just before the election. And he passed to the second round. He was supported uh, he's still at certain point supported by a party called Peru Libre, Free Peru, which declared itself Marxist-Leninist. But uh, Pedro Castillo was not a militant of that party until recently. He was chosen by the party. He was offered the candidacy ticket by the party. He ran and he won. And at the beginning, uh, people from Peru Libre's party were represented mostly in the Castillo's uh, cabinet. Mm. Uh, but then there was a very vicious attack by the media, by the oligarchy of Peru, and uh, Mr. Castillo was the, um, forced to, to change the cabinet, essentially. Yeah. And yeah. the problem is that Peru Libre, as a bloc in parliament, do not have the majority. And uh, the differently to Chile, in which is pretty hard to remove a president, we have never done that like uh, through a constitutional uh, or an institutional process. We are having a impeachment process right now as we are speaking, and it will probably not go ahead in the Senate. It will pass mm -hmm. the House, but it will not uh, uh, get. Uh, uh, he will not be impeached by the Senate. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but in Peru, it's pretty easy to remove uh, a president. Because there is the circumstantial coalitions of uh, small parties that go against the incumbent president 
re they remove him, they force force him to change cabinet, etc. So they have been moderating the cabinet of uh, President Castillo, uh, and he's like he he has no real choice because he has he has no leverage in the in in parliament. Yeah, if he doesn't have a majority coalition. And also, you know, I've been I was I've been watching these reports. God, the media, the media on Latin America and English is so terrible. A lot of the reports in English about uh Chile and the migrants that are coming to Chile reference that there's people coming from Peru. And I don't know if this is true or not, but in the reports on Chile, the reporters will say, "Oh, like all these Peruvians are coming to uh, Chile because they're escaping the terrible economy. The economy in Peru was great. And then Castillo became president like a few months ago. And now suddenly the economy yeah. is tanking. Is that actually true? No. Like, what's that about? Is that just it's, propaganda? It's, it's, it's propaganda. I mean, I've never seen those reports, but <laughs> I would say that in the 90s, uh, Peruvian and Bolivian immigration was most of the made most of, most of the uh, migrant communities in Chile. Mm. So there was a moment in which Chile was the shining city of the hill in Latin America, and the people from other countries, especially Bolivia and Peru, came to Chile to make fortunes and send uh, remittance to, to their family in, in Peru or Bolivia. Uh, so they were most of the migrant community in the 90s, but that changed change it because uh you know uh, peruvian peruvian economy started to grow also and they start returning there's still mm -hmm. a lot of peruvians here but uh, i never hear about the uh, <laughs> like an upsurge of peruvian immigration after castillo i've just heard that um venezuelans are fleeing peru mm. and coming to uh, Chile because of castillo okay. and i also hear that they are planning to go to the U.S. if Boric is elected president here. Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it's just terrible how all this propaganda plays out because then, you know, the thing is that people don't realize is sanctions work. Like, ultimately, U.S. sanctions work. The U.S. completely tanked the Venezuelan economy. I'm not saying the Venezuelan government is completely blameless. I'm sure they, you know, any government in this situation does, isn't going to know the, all the perfect decisions to make. And you're really screwed when the U.S. completely sanctions your main industry, which is Venezuela's the oil industry. But for the average person, all they notice is like, okay, my living standards have gone down and now I need to leave because I can't get a job here. And they're going to blame whoever's in power. I mean, that's the situation in Lebanon too. Like, people will, the economy's tanking and people will hear the media reports, the Western media reports yeah. or the Saudi media reports blaming Hezbollah. And then you'll just hear them repeat it. They're like, well, it's Hezbollah's fault. Like the economy's tanking. It's all Hezbollah's fault. And they end up just sanctions work. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I wanted to move to, you talked a little bit about Argentina and I, you know, Argentina in like the U.S. popular imagination is often like kind of like the way that Chile is perceived as being one of the better Latin American countries, like one of the more stable countries. Uh, and probably part of that has to do with racism, too. But um, when it comes to Argentina, I mean, it's quite shocking the numbers, the poverty numbers. It's over 40 percent of people in Argentina are living in poverty, which is really yeah. a shocking statistic. They've got crazy inflation, which they've been dealing with for years, which you and I were talking about before we started recording. And so you had mentioned um, far right, the rise of like this far right guy in Buenos Aires. So 
Is there any sort of, I wanted to ask you, is there any sort of leftist upsurge? Like, I feel like if the economy is doing poorly and you have all these people living in impoverished conditions, it's also, you know, yes, it's an opportunity for the right to rise, but there also should be an opportunity there for the far left to arise. So you mentioned the far right. Is there any far left in Argentina that's also like in parallel rising amidst this uh, economic disaster? There there is a problem in Argentina. Mm. Some people will say that's the greatness of Argentina or some will say it's the course of Argentina, which is Peronism. Peronism, the ideology of uh, Juan Domingo Perón, which was a populist leader in Argentina in the 50s. And uh, Peronism as, uh, is very big, uh, in, in, it's, it's not very concrete in, in economic terms and in, 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 ideolo- in, in ideological terms. So Peronism talks to the middle class, talks to the working class, it's against the oligarchy, it promotes workers' rights, it promotes industrialization, it's against the free market, but that was Peronism in its classical... Uh, it, 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 it was Peronism when Peron was alive. So what happened after that is that, you know, Peronism is, is so big as a concept that you may have right-wing Peronism, as Mr. Mm-hmm. Menem in the 90s, that was like the poster child of the Washington consensus in, in, in South America. And on the other hand, you have the, the Kirchner's as a left-wing expression of, uh, of uh, Peronism. And then in the 70s, there was far-right Peronism with the Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance. And you have far-left Peronism, you know, with the Montoneros uh, organization. So the problem is in Argentina is that when it comes to like uh, an alternative to Peronism, there is not. So the only way in which the left can grow is within the umbrella of Peronism, you know, and outside Peronism, there is only Trotskyism, you know, and I think one of the few countries in which Trotskyism is a thing is Argentina because they have people in parliament they have people in local governments and stuff like that. And they have, I don't know where they get the money, but they usually send people to other Latin American countries like Chile to set up branches of their Trotskyist parties. Uh, and there is like many Trotskyist parties in, in, in Argentina. So I think one of the biggest problems for the left is that there is no way to grow up uh, outside the umbrella of Peronism. And Peronism is, a, is so big, uh, it's is a, is a movement so, so big that in the same, you, in, in the same uh, movement you have uh, representatives of the working class and at the same time you have big agribusiness or uh, big, uh, big um, businessmen and they are all working together in this uh, messy, <laughs> messy framework, you want to call it. So that's the problem. <laughs> it sounds, I'm sorry, it just it sounds kind of like the Democratic Party. <laughs> that's what there's the fluidity of that sort of like there's people on the left but then there's also people on the right but then there's also people on the center um but you know so i think a good place to end on though because like i don't want to just bash the left because actually you know despite the ups and downs of the left and right in latin america 
as a whole, as a continent, it does seem like the only one of the only parts of the world where there is a left. And what I mean by that yeah. is I'm talking about, you know, maybe not in Chile, the left isn't in power, but you have Cuba, you have Venezuela, you have Nicaragua, you have Bolivia, you have countries where the left, you know, actually has captured power, is in power, is resisting, not just on a like local domestic level, but even yeah. as an anti-imperialist left, which is really something to celebrate in so many ways. And, you know, the reason I mentioned that is because I'm sitting here in Beirut. I'm wishing, I'm wishing there was even an Arab left that's like worth talking about, let alone capable of having any power. And as you know, like America, which I'm also American, America has a very divided and small left with really you know, no real actual power. So why do you think that the Latin American left, and I know that's a very umbrella term because obviously every country is yeah. different, but why do you think that the left in Latin America that does have power, why do you think it has done as well as it has compared to the left in other parts of the world? I mean, the left in Latin America has done well, but uh, what I'm fearing, sorry to be so pessimistic, is that uh, there is certain type of countries in which the left can be successful. Mm. And uh, those are the countries that have a more, uh, like a more, um, let's say a more uh, deep uh, sense of uh, identity. I, I want necessarily national identity, but the cultural identity, historical memory, mm -hmm. countries like Bolivia, countries like Peru, even Peru, knowing that it's the first left-wing government in, in, in Peru since, I don't know. They, in Peru, there was a socialist military junta <laughs> in wow, parallel to Pinochet in Chile. Oh. Uh, and they made <laughs> the land reform in the, in the 70s. Uh, but so, 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 so actually the left is successful in countries that have some sort of social cohesion, that, ha that have been not so uh, eroded by neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why they have been successful. Because the Cuban Revolution happened in the, in the late uh, 50s, and they are still there. The, 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 the Venezuelan Revolution happened in the late 90s, just confronting the Washington Consensus. Same applies to Bolivia and other countries. Nicaragua had the Sandinista revolution before uh, Ortega <laughs> coming back to power. Uh, and in the case of Chile, for instance, uh, the last left-wing government we have was Allende. That mm. was only three years in power. And uh, then we have the dictatorship and, and, and we came to resemble too much to the U.S. in terms of, uh, you know, these uh, fragmented, fragmented identities. So people mm. is, you know... Uh, divided about gender, uh, social movements, the environment, the animals, uh, whatever, you know. And actually, it's like the identity of the working class as working class has been lost in this country. Mm. That's, I, I, and I think that. that's the problem in, in many Latin American countries, is that neoliberal ideology has been so pervasive that you don't think, you don't think in the terms the left class. should think about. You know, you, you, you are forgetting about class and not, I am not even talking about being anti-imperialist. Mm -hmm. Many people here in Chile believe that imperialism is not even a thing, you know. Like in America. And, uh, 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, but America is the empire, so I I, I have no problem <laughs> with that. The problem, the problem is that us do not identify mm. imperialism as imperialism, and 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 we have the problem in the kind of our left. Uh, we have the problem that we look too much to the global north uh, left experiences, like Podemos of Spain, like Syriza of Greece like the democratic socialists of the US, like the labor parties in, in the UK. And, and you see those are all failures. Yeah. You know? And we are looking at failures to try to do something good here because the problem is that the, the, the elites of our left-wing parties is, are, are not coming from the working class. Mm. The, they are middle-class or upper-class people who get access to college education, that got the scholarship and they went to study, uh, study at the US or at the UK or at France or Spain. And those are their, you know, ideological frameworks. So they have more in common, I don't know, with, with Bernie Sanders or, or Iglesias from Spain than with uh, Evo Morales or uh, Lula or, or, or Correa. That's so unfortunate just because it's like you're not it's learning like, from the like, left like in your own name. Yeah, it's we like, have. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I took, it's I it's took like a out. cultural colonization of the left. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it because I, I never thought about it like that. But that's so unfortunate is taking lessons from these global north like failed projects rather than learning from successful leftist movements that are literally your next door neighbors. Yeah. And that's, that's, I just want to touch on something you said about like cultural or like national identity as like some sort of cohesive identity for people to build around as well as a working class identity. And I think that's one of the reasons I think there's a parallel to be made about the Middle East as you know, I complain a lot about how the left here is almost non-existent. And a part of the problem, the part of the reason for that is they were never able to take their leftist ideology and create a form of it that worked with the local indigenous, like uh, cultural uh, heritage and identity. And that's one thing that countries like, you know, like it or not, like Iran has managed to build a, sort of revolutionary movement and appeal around a certain um, around a certain cultural identity. Uh, and the same goes for a group like Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, they really they've built their their entire sort of revolutionary ideology around their their base, around their sort of like Shia working class, former like former and still peasant community. Um, and with Palestinians, it's like around the Palestinian identity. And so that I think is, I think you're, you're really speaking to something important there about like when that doesn't exist or when you don't, you know, have that sort of identity for people to build a revolutionary ideology around it, it very quickly falls apart. On that note, Renato, thank you for giving me an hour and a half of your time. Uh, I really appreciate you coming down and breaking down Chilean politics and the far right and far left scene for us. I learned a yeah, lot. Th thanks to you. And I will be glad to come here again after the elections. <laughs> yes, of course. Because thank it, you so much. There's a lot of things that will shock the world. Honestly. Yeah. We'll need, we'll need to have you come on and break that down for us as well. Thank you so yeah. much, Renato. Thank you.